This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Very excited to bring you Raina Rose Exelbeard. Raina is a passionate, vivacious Jewish woman. She runs a company called The Rose Grows, and she's also a children's author, multiple books to her credit at this point. You will hear her passion for life and for people literally jumps off the airwaves and into the hearts of all of her listeners. Very excited to bring her to you today. A big shout out to the great Sydney Siegel, who is a student at Florida State University and someone I've gotten to know through my work in Jewish education and outreach with campuses. She's a founding president of our Jewish Pre-Health Society at FSU. Go Knowles! Thank you, Sydney. Meanwhile, a reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know. Spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter you on Twitter. Comments or questions through Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever podcast platform you enjoy. And please tell others to follow us as well. It really helps get the word out about our show, which is coming up on its 200th episode, believe it or not. And now, without further ado, to our conversation with The Rose Grows founder and CEO, Raina Rose Axelbeard. We are here with Raina Rose Axelbeard, and I'm sure I butchered that, but she'll correct me if she so chooses. But Raina is CEO of The Rose Grows, which specializes in empowering teenagers and spreading kindness. Those sound like nice ideas. Also an author of children's books, and I'm sure a lot more. But first of all, how are you, Raina? I am doing fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on the Jews You Should Know podcast. I very much believe in the six degrees of separation. And if you are looking for someone who definitely has that six degree of separation uh, with everyone in the world, I am that Jew that you should know, <laughs> the girl who said shalom to everyone, Wayne Rose Exelbeard. <laughs> What's happening? Love it. Love it. Now, first of all, did I pronounce it correctly? It's Axel Bird? So close. My last name is is Axel Beard. Um, you know, growing up the youngest with three older brothers, I've been called all kinds of things. Um, and sometimes you just you gotta roll with it. I'm sure that I'm sure that was a uh that was ripe for uh, teasing with a name with that many uh, different letters, but sounds like you came out unscathed or at least surviving. So you know, I think something that the listeners of this show specifically would would understand is that, you know, when I was in first grade in Memphis, Tennessee, I went to the Margolin Finestone Cooper Yeshiva of the South, and I had to learn how to spell five other families' last names before I did learn how to spell Exelbeard. So <laughs> you win some and you lose some. <laughs> there you go. Incredible. And, and I want to talk to you about Memphis a little bit, which is uh, th- those listening can obviously hear your uh, pronounced Memphian lilt. Um, and actually my family, really my wife's family has very deep Memphis ties. Um, 
because of the Margolins. You mentioned Margolin. Margolin actually was the family that sponsored my wife's grandparents to come over from Europe uh, after the Holocaust. Uh, they are cousins. Uh, Sam Margolin is a cousin of my wife's grandparents, um, after whom my uh, my oldest son is named, uh, Mayor Ben Sion. So we have very deep ties. My father-in-law grew up uh, in Memphis and actually with perhaps the only more difficult name than yours, which was Kivalevitz. So uh, long-standing name over there. And uh, they may have actually won the Consonant Olympics of uh, Jewish Memphis back in the day. So um, I don't know if you knew anyone from that family, Reina. Um, so I just wrote down Kivalevitz because you know the first thing I'm going to do when we finish this interview is I'm going to call my mom and I'm going to play a little Jewish geography. But you know, the Margolin family is the reason why I have such a strong uh, Jewish education. And uh, I love that that we're connected in more ways than one. That's awesome. So, Raina, you grew up in Memphis and was your family there like multi-generation? How did they get to Memphis? Everyone's got a story. It's interesting because most of the time people are shocked to even find out that there are Jews in Memphis. What do you mean? They had the largest Orthodox synagogue in the country for a while. Yeah, Baron Hirsch, come on. I didn't know that. That's a, that's a super fun fact. This weekend I was at a wedding and uh, there were over 300 people and people kept asking me, like, are you related to the groom? And I had to explain, you know, and, and Memphis, we're not, we're not cousins, but like our grandparents went to school together. Our parents went to school together. And like me and the groom, like we too went to school together. So on my mom's side, we've been in Memphis for over three generations, but on my father's side, um, my dad was the first Exelbeard born in America after the Holocaust. So who, who was the one that came over? So it was my my dad's parents came uh, from Poland through a series of events. It was really interesting. My grandparents were very insistent that you call them Holocaust refugees because they were never in a camp, although they were on the run most of the war, they were in Russia only to then come back to Poland. Um, and through a series of events, uh, my grandfather met an American general and that general put my grandfather in charge of a displaced persons camp in Nuremberg of all places. And so for those who are listening and have no idea what a displaced persons camp is, also known as a DP camp, um, and Ari, I'm sure you you have some some context to add to this, DP camps were... When the war was over, the Jewish people had somewhere that they needed to go in between getting citizenship and moving and starting a new life. So in these DP camps, not only were people having children, um, but they were learning skills so that when they immigrated, they had the ability to be a carpenter or a seamstress or an accountant, what you know, whatever that trade might be. So my Jewish redneck uncle who lives in Texas, he was the last Exelbeard born in Europe. He was born in that uh, DP camp in Nuremberg. So when he came to America with my grandparents, it was very much like immigrant, not a lot of money, you know, really learning the way of, you know, the American dream. Whereas 10 years later, when my father was born, it was more of like my dad got to experience new clothes. My dad got to experience having a car as a teenager. So it was just two different uh, childhoods, even though they both came from the same parents. Yeah, my father-in-law actually was also was born in a DP camp 
and uh, then came over, you know, when he was a, a little baby. So that was that transitional period for a lot of survivors, refugees, whatever you might call them, where they had that really that immigrant experience. And then, yeah, maybe his, his younger siblings, a little bit more uh, American, perhaps. But what was your own childhood like growing up in Memphis? And did the Holocaust cast some sort of pall over your childhood? What was that? What was its influence uh, as you were growing up? Totally. So I grew up in like a very, very loving household. Um, my house was like always full of people and of food. Although I don't keep kosher throughout my lifestyle, I've always grown up with a kosher home in Memphis, Tennessee. And on Friday nights, everybody was, you know, always welcome, whether they were visiting or even if they, even if they weren't Jewish, if they were coaching, you know, a soccer team, um, there was always a place for people um, at my mom's table. And it's really interesting because, you know, when people ask me about my public speaking career, growing up with over 13 first cousins and, and also having them always come over for Friday night dinners, we had this thing in my family where if you misbehaved during the week. You had to stand up at the Shabbat dinner table in front of all of the family and tell them about what you did and answer any of the questions. Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds like public shaming. Oh my God. Oh my God. You talk about like being in the hot seat and my parents work from home. So not only like would I, you know, be a little mischievous, but every time my teachers called home, my parents would always answer on the second ring. So there was always like my story, my parents' story, and, you know, the teacher's story. And regarding like Holocaust education, my my grandparents were so much older that uh, my only memories with them was, you know, just as a loving granddaughter. We never had like mature, like grown-up conversations. For me, the Holocaust really like became alive through my dad every year watching my dad be a part of Holocaust Yom HaShoah Remembrance event in Memphis, Tennessee, which my grandfather helped started. And, you know, that was one of the things I really, really took for granted in terms of growing up in a Jewish community, a small Southern Jewish community, and then moving to South Florida with such a large Jewish population. I never realized how special it is that the Memphis Jewish community comes together for certain things, Holocaust awareness and education being one of those things. So I remember going with my dad to a lot of these programs, participating in them. Um, I even remember one time my dad came home with like a science fair board where somebody had put my grandfather's picture on it and they had like done like a history project um, on my grandfather, which I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, movie Paperclips. Paperclips, yep. Yeah. So it was a student at that school who did a project on my grandfather. And it was just kind of like one of those out-of-body experiences where it's like, not like what's so special about my grandpa, but like it always stood with me. And I'll say like one of the biggest things too with my grandparents is when you lose someone you, you love, you don't lose the person. I like to say that the relationship just changes. And um, two big things that came up for me in recent years was, you know, my whole life I've had this book that uh, was my grandfather's and it was written in Yiddish and it was about the DP camp. And when I first got my job in the nonprofit world um, in 2015, I had a Holocaust survivor help translate this letter. 
And throughout the letter, my grandfather was talking about how important Palestine was and, and how we just needed to be in Palestine and just what a wish that would be. And just looking at the year of that and at the time, working for Stand With Us, working for an international Israel like education organization, it just like kind of like made me realize how lucky I am to be a modern Orthodox Jewish woman in, you know, 2022 and have the ability to openly share my story. And the other thing that I'll point out is the way that Genya, the Holocaust survivor, described my grandfather and described his word choice. I thought she was talking about me. And even though I was like, you know, 23 years old, it was the very first time in my life where like I thought about my me and my grand my grandpa almost as like equals, like comparing our personalities and comparing, you know, our our skill sets. And um about a year ago, I uh for the first time I listened to my grandfather's story. I had it digitized. And it's so crazy how, you know, you put something on your to-do list and sometimes those things like they might live there for a couple weeks, but through, you know, divine intervention of all days where I ended up listening to his story. I think it ended up, it was like his 101st birthday or like his 100th birthday. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very big on numbers. I'm, I'm very, very big on, on being present because we are surrounded by signs of people we've lost or things that we want to manifest in our life. But if we're ever so sad or so in grief or so jealous of other people, then you're you're not going to be able to like see those signs and you're not going to be able to be inspired by them. Beautiful. So what did you do as you were, you know, emerging out of teenagehood? I assume you went to college and um, what were you studying? Where'd you go? What were your interests? Yeah. So I went to like a very academic challenging high school in Memphis, Tennessee. Shout out to White Station Spartans. And I was not a straight A student, but I went to school with a lot of people who did make straight A's. And um, it's funny now that I, I, I write books and I write articles because when I was in high school, I did not think that I was a good writer because I wasn't confident with my grammar. And I went to school with other students who could use words that even today, I, 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 I don't know those words, right? So I, I used to think that like being smart was sort of like defined, you know, by my grades and really where I built a lot of confidence was like being involved in the Jewish community, which later, you know, gave me the skills to be a leader in the secular community, right? Had I not had NCSY, had I not had, you know, different groups at my synagogue or at my JCC or in my community or with BBYO, I would have never been equipped to go into student government or um, have the confidence to go participate in a spoken word, you know, poetry contest. Um, it's really interesting, like how many successful people, when you look at their story, it started in the church or it started in the in the synagogue. So um, I really want to encourage people who who are listening don't let like your talents and your, and your intelligence, like be defined just by like grades or just by your school, Um, you know, through really embracing your Judaism, you can learn so much about yourself and about the world and about other people. And also over the summers going to camp young Judea, I kind of knew that when I graduated high school, 
I was going to go to Israel for a year. And it was kind of like one of those decisions that the closer I got, the more reasons were added to my list on like why this was a good choice. And looking back now, you know, over a decade later, like that list is still growing in terms of like why that was the best, you know, choice for me. And, you know, people ask like, you know, how did I settle on Israel and how did I settle on FAO? Well, my parents are both accountants. Uh, you know, sometimes throughout my life, people have called me Raina Excel Beard. Uh-huh. And my parents sat me down and they showed me on a spreadsheet. They were like, okay, Raina Rose, like, you say you want to go to California or Arizona. We could maybe do that like two years, maybe two and a half between living and traveling and school and all the costs, right? They were like, or you could go to Israel for a year and we'll get an apartment in Florida and then we'll get in-state tuition and you'll go to FAU for four years. What do you want to do? So thank God, Baruch Hashem, I chose option B. Um, And when I went to Israel, it like changed my world. It was the first time in my life where I felt smart and confident, and funny, and cool, and healthy. It was the first time in my life I truly felt accepted, my neshema, my soul, for who I was. There was no like, you're not this, or you should change, or you're not good enough. I just felt so much love there from everyone and and everything. First three months, I volunteered in the Israeli army, and that was an insane experience. Uh, not only did I get to meet like really, really, really interesting people from all over the world, but if you can believe this, I used to have a really, really bad temper, like, like super bad. Um, and that was like one of the first things that they like took care of in the army. I'm talking like first week of the army, they're waking me up in the middle of the night. They're making me run. It was a little traumatic. But I can honestly say, like, since that experience, I've only gotten, like, angry like that, like, a handful of times. And, you know, it's important to know, like, the Torah says that, like, anger is like fire. You know, it's it's really, like, not, uh, like, a good emotion to hang on to. So, you know, my biggest advice for anyone when you start to get that feeling where you feel like you're about to turn into a Power Ranger and, like, you want to get really upset is, you know, in that moment, challenge yourself, like, what can you do to not feel that way? And for me personally, sometimes that means like doing something for somebody else, like buying coffee for the person who cut me off in line. Cause that one angry moment really can damage your entire day. And it can keep you from being nice to other people, which for me personally, that's, you know, really what, what fuels my fire. And after I was volunteering in the army, then I was doing archeological digging in Jerusalem not because like I really n- n- cared so much about history or I, I like am passionate about like becoming an archaeologist. It was one of those things where I was like, never in my life am I going to have this experience ever again. So like, let's do it. Right. And so, again, I really want to emphasize for the listeners like Being Jewish opens your world to so many different opportunities. And again, like I look back at my life and it's, it's not just like my education. It's, it's not just like how I treat people, but it's also like the rooms and places that I've been able to, to visit because of my Judaism. 
after I was in Jerusalem, I was living in Bat Yam. I was working with uh, Jewish and Muslim kids. I was coaching them in soccer. Um, I was going out, you know, and making friends in Tel Aviv. And then after like a magical year there, I moved to FAU. Were you on your course? Is that what you were on in Israel? Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing. So for anyone who thinks that like going to Israel at any point in their journey, whether you're 18 years old or 23 years old or 30 years old, like you're never going to hold yourself back by, by going there. You're only going to put yourself in a position of really like filling up your cup and like feeling more fulfilled and like giving yourself an opportunity to like look back at your life and be like, wow, like that's something that I'm really, really, really proud that I did. What were you interested in getting involved with? Because uh, obviously you ended up in nonprofit work. Was that something you were passionate about right away? And in college, did you know you wanted to go into something having to do with Israel advocacy? What was your, uh, what were your early designs? So great question. Um, growing up as a teen, I did a lot of nonprofit stuff. But after living in Israel for a year, I was like, I'm going to go to FAU. I'm going to study business and I'm going to make a lot of money. And then eventually I'll go into politics. Like that was the plan. I wanted to make like so much money. And the first week of school, somebody said to my face that Israeli soldiers drink blood and that Jews stole the land and that Israel was racist. And in that moment, I had experiences from Israel to know I didn't drink blood. I worked at an archaeological dig site, but I didn't actually have like the factual knowledge to combat this person. And it got very emotional. There were a lot of tears, you know, involved because in my mind, I'm going to tell this person my experiences and they're just going to immediately change their mind and like believe what I believe. Right. So after that conversation, the Hillel, uh, the Shaliach, I felt like I was on one of those shows of like, you know, would you do something? Because immediately after this conversation, the Shaliach, uh, shout out to Hadar Rava. She's like, eh, we need a new Israel advocacy intern and you're hired. And the head of Hillel at the time was like, you know, Reina, it's super cool that you've been to Israel. We think it's great. You got Israeli friends. But like, if you're going to be the Israel advocacy intern, you kind of need to know some stuff about Israel. Which I'll be honest, when I was on my gap year program, um, we had an Israel advocacy class. All right, I plagiarized a paper on Israel in that class from Wikipedia, only to later call that guy Zev Ben Shahar after college to be like, hey, guess who's teaching teens, you know, now about Israel. So it's funny how things, you know, come full circle. But the Hillel director was like, Raina, we're gonna send you to this stand with us conference in Los Angeles. And the biggest thing that happened for me at that conference was when I was a senior in high school, one of the biggest things I did before I graduated was I started a new BBYO girls group called Daniel Pearl BBG, which I work with teenagers. So most of the people who I speak to have no idea who Daniel Pearl is. So for those who are listening, uh, Daniel Pearl is an American Jewish journalist who was kidnapped by terrorists and on national television, they said, what are your final words? He said, my name is Daniel Pearl. I'm a Jew. And they chopped off his head. And it was one of the most horrific things that had ever been broadcasted on television. Like that's one of the reasons why there's actually delay on the news. 
And, you know, we started this group in his honor. It was all about community service. I graduated high school. I went to Israel. I forgot all about Daniel Pearl BBG until I went to Los Angeles. And the very first conference at that Shabbat dinner was Daniel Pearl's dad. Judah Pearl. Yes. And it was the first time in my life where I experienced what I like to call the full circle moment or something you did in the past all of a sudden makes the present moment, you know, on fire. And at the time you couldn't just like go on Twitter or go on Google and find somebody and contact them. Right. So being able to go up to him after the speech and tell him about the group and put him in touch with the young women, it really, really, really empowered me. And the other thing was, you know, in high school, I was involved in a lot of different groups. I lost a lot of elections, but I learned what it meant to be a good member. And when I was at this Stand With Us conference, I was really shocked to meet other people who weren't Jewish, who number one, cared about Israel. Number two, they knew a lot more about Israel than I did. And I'm like, wow, like I grew up going to this modern Orthodox day school. I did all these other things. Like how could these people who aren't Jewish like know more than I do? So I kind of took that as like a fun challenge. But then I really felt needed because when we would go into these meeting rooms, it would be like we're having challenges organizing events and we're having challenges recruiting members and how do we book a speaker and how do we da 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 and these were all things that I learned through being a good member so I was like you know what it feels really natural for me to give advice here this Israel advocacy thing seems really cool I found out that I could travel like there were all these trips I could go to Israel I could go around the country to learn more about Israel so that's really really what drew me in And then I would say like really the biggest like catalyst that sort of like changed everything was the winter break of my freshman year. I went to Israel with a group of uh, Jewish students and Christian students. And the biggest thing that we did on that trip was we were told bring toys from America because when we get to Israel, you're going to meet some children who are disadvantaged. But then right as we were getting off the bus, they said these children who you're about to play with. They all have PTSD because they used to live in Gush Katif. These are the trailers that they're living in right now while they're waiting on their new homes and like go have fun with the kids. And now social media is different. Now there's a lot more awareness of like mental, mental illness and mental health and some of these different situations. But back then it was like, I never knew a four-year-old or a five-year-old could have such a traumatic disorder. I always thought of like a strong, like military man. And the reason I bring that up is because the spring of my freshman year, when I came home from Shabbat dinner on my dorm, I had an eviction notice and it had Palm Beach County's government stamp on it. It had my university stamp on it. So I legitimately thought that like my mom hadn't paid my bill or something and that I was being evicted. But as I began to read the eviction notice, it said that Israel kicks Palestinians out of their home for no reason, that Israel's racist and a a bunch of other horrible things, and that my dorm is scheduled for demolition on Monday and to get out. 
insane. Very clever propaganda tactic, but very disturbing. Yeah. And at that moment, when I ran around my floor of my dorm, there was only one dorm that had the notice. I found out on Monday, these students said that they like randomly like put up like 300 notices. But not only did I feel extremely targeted, but when I went up to the president of the anti-Israel group, who, by the way, every day used to wear the map of Israel like around her neck, completely covered in a Palestinian flag, like used to call me a spider monkey behind my back. Like these anti-Israel students like used to cyber bully me. Like when I would be tabling every week, they would, you know, they would take pictures of me and like write like horrible comments about me. But that following Monday, when I went up to the president at the time and I said, I don't appreciate the hate that you taped on my door Friday night and I would like an apology. She told me that it was a creative and fun thing to do and that I had no case and that no one would listen to me. Well, that was 2011, and here we are, 2023. I've spoken to over a quarter of a million people later, mostly not Jewish teenagers. And if she wouldn't have said that to me, if she wouldn't have put that hate on the door, if she wouldn't have said that nobody was going to listen to me, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you right now. And that's also kind of like a big story of the Jewish people is like, I like to say even flowers need shit to grow. Like we're going to go through like some serious challenges sometimes, but part of the resilience is being able to like stay the course, especially if you're holding on to your meat out, to your values, whether that comes from religion, your family, your life experience, or for me, a combination of, of all three. After college, you went to work for Stand With Us. And were you speaking around the country, different campuses? What were you doing? Yeah. So after I graduated college, I got the business degree. And because I'd worked with all these different nonprofits in college, it was basically like, not who do you want to work for, but where do you want to work? So for all my college students who are listening, the more connections and experiences you can build in college, the more that's going to translate to a job offer when you graduate. Um, I chose to work for Stan with us in their high school department because for me, I realized like how many experiences that I had in the Jewish world as a teen and that if I could be the one to inspire a connection to, to Israel for a lot of those teens, then to me, that is just like, could be like the biggest mitzvah. I remember there was a summer I was in Israel and I ran into some Jewish teens from Memphis that I had seen since they were little and just telling them about my experiences at FAU and what I'd been doing and how I organized this big conference and blah, 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 blah. When I walked away from that conversation, I was like, you know, like if I could be doing something like with teens and like with stand with us, like that would be amazing. So for four years, I worked in the Southeast doing two things. One, I was mentoring teens. I was training them how to organize events and, and overcome anti-Semitism and, you know, really build confidence through communication and, and leadership training. And then the other half of my job was speaking. So going into schools and going into conferences. And the biggest thing I'll say about the speaking is when I first started, I was like, 
His role is so controversial. Nobody cares about Israel or anti-Semitism unless they're Jewish. That's really what I thought because, you know, that was sort of like the bubble that I'd come out of. But I'm so glad that I popped that bubble because I realized people really, really, really care about your personal story. And people don't have to under, like people don't have to agree with you in order to understand your experience. And everybody like wants to have like the experience of being heard and like feeling belonged. And unfortunately, many people in their lives have been like discriminated or left out for different reasons. So a big thing for me over the years is that I've realized like a lot of this just comes down to Derek Eretz being a good person and being able to have conversations with people where you're really just trying to get to know the person. It's not about changing someone else's mind as much as it's figuring out what inspired them to have those beliefs. And that when you listen to somebody else, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, that person is going to pay that same respect back to you. So like, if you can believe this, like Yasser Arafat's great niece was in one of my programs once, recognized Israel as a Jewish state, still follows me, you know, to this day on Instagram. So a big part of what I do is when I come in, I say, you know, my cause is anti-Semitism. My cause is Holocaust. My cause is female empowerment and youth leadership. These were my skills growing up. And this is how I was able to apply them in different ways to get to where I am now. And all of you were named your name for a reason. And all of you ended up in this classroom because of a series of decisions that your parents and that your grandparents made. And, um, you know, unfortunately I lost my dad a couple of years ago. That was, you know, the big inspiration behind the kids book, but also really empowering young people to, to recognize that you need to be having these conversations with your family members while they're still around. And acknowledging that like technology makes it so easy, like filming a, a video with your grandma for 45 minutes, asking her questions about her life. It's not about like having to put that on YouTube as much as it's being able to like hold on to that or having a journal where you write messages like back and forth between, you know, a mother and a daughter or, or a father and a son, because these are all things that as we get older and, you know, we, we lose people that, that we love. Those are the things that like, we're, we're really going to want to hold on to. So at some point you transitioned away from the Israel advocacy, at least as a vocation. Yeah. When did you start getting involved in more, what do you call teenage empowerment uh, and so forth? And where, where did things take you from there? And you mentioned the book and your father's passing to give us the next steps. Totally. So I started to see that like when I would go into the classrooms, a lot of the students wanted to be leaders, but not all these young people come from communities where they have organizations or they have temples where they can belong or they had mentors that could teach them some of these different skills. Right. So I would say like really like my last two years at Stand With Us, I realized like I was talking a lot about like leadership and realizing that like the teens like had a lot of aspirations for leadership 
And I truly believe that like every child deserves the world. So three years ago, 2018, I left the nonprofit world to launch the Rose Grows, where I made it my intention to want to take my message as many places as possible. And I'll tell you what's really funny is when I first started the Rose Grows, I was like, I am a leadership speaker. I'm a motivational speaker. I am not like the Jewish speaker, even though my first gig as the Rose Grows ended up being at a Holocaust convention in Vancouver. It was incredible. But I was so just burnt out from the four years that I was like, no, I'm going to be Tony Robbins, but like with long hair, like, you know, Israel and the Judaism, like that was like the past chapter. And also I was mentoring so many teens at the time that I also was like, I'm never mentoring another teen again. Like I'm, you know, I'm burnt out. And it's funny because at the time my mom was like, Raina, go speak to corporations and like go mentor teens. And I looked at my mom and I was like, mom, I have no experience to speak to corporations, which we call that self-limiting, you know, beliefs. Like now I, I speak to corporations about, you know, my, my different experiences. And these are things that I've faced for 10 years. Right. But sometimes in life, we have to take a couple steps back and redesign, you know, what's going on. And, you know, my first year in business, I really went through this personal like development journey. But through that, once I started embracing my full story, all of a sudden, like my world started opening up with like opportunities and new contacts and like projects. And whereas at the beginning of my career, I was like, I don't want to be near the Israel stuff anymore. I realized my power and what makes me such an amazing speaker is that like when I go on any stage, whether it's about the book or female empowerment or Israel or whatever it is, my personal story, my family history, my experiences with anti-Semitism is always going to come up because that's just a core part of, of who I am. And we live in a world where we feel like we have to like filter ourselves for different reasons. I experienced this a lot, you know, as a woman, as like, well, you know, you work with kids, like you should only be like this and it should only be like that. And one of the biggest lessons with the kids is, you know, this idea of like a, like a personal Instagram and like a public Instagram. And, you know, there's still some people who will say things to me of like, well, you know, like, you know, children's author shouldn't say that, or a children's author shouldn't look like that. But just like there's a few people who say like those negative things, there are so many moms who say to me, and there are so many people in my network who say to me, you know, Raina, when you wear sneakers to the wedding, when you when you dress the way that you want to dress, you're inspiring our girls that they can dress how they want to dress. And it's same thing with like some of like my messages on Judaism. It's I think by me being like openly proud and sharing those messages, it's it's showing other people that. People care about what you have to say. They care about your story. You don't need a stage to make a difference. You just have to be willing to listen to somebody else first so that they give you the space to then share what you're so passionate about. What were your goals specifically with this organization? And why did you decide to do it as a for-profit as opposed to a nonprofit, which sounds 
kind of more, you know, typically I would, I would imagine these kinds of conversations happening within a nonprofit structure. Yeah. Really. When I first started, my goal was I want to inspire as many people as possible of all different ages. And although my mission and how I do that changes, anything could happen to, you know, change, change the mission. But the vision has very much always been when one grows, we all grow. This idea of it's not just about me building a brand, but realizing that when I use my time and my talents to support others, when I can create space for other people to be the speaker and for other people to be the, you know, the change makers, that's where the real magic happens. In terms of like profit versus nonprofit, I definitely think in the future, as I as I grow and become, you know, a smarter woman in business, that a nonprofit is something that I'd like to pursue. But I also want to really emphasize to the listeners that there is an intersection between passion and purpose. And you can get paid good to do good in the world. In fact, like I think that's that's what Hashem would 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 want from you is how can you apply your skills and gifts in a way that not only do you feel good about yourself, but you're also like able to to live a life where you can make choices where you get to be the decision maker as opposed to like your choices having to make the decisions for you. So what specifically did you start to do in order to empower teens? Because it sounds like you're speaking to a wide range of audiences, including corporate clients. How does that intersect with the notion of speaking to teens and teenage girls in particular? Totally. So during COVID, that first summer, when all the camps were being canceled, I was like, you know, I know a lot about professional development. I know a lot about this leadership stuff. but as I was saying before, that year kind of leading up to COVID, my first year on my own, I was going to a lot of personal development conferences and participating in a lot of different groups and like learning a lot of different things about goal setting and 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 journaling and listing out your accomplishments and recognizing how we talk to ourselves, right? Those are just like a few of those examples. So I was like, you know, why don't I create this program called Teen Tribe where I'll bring boys and girls together online and we'll meet for an hour and it'll be all about leadership. And then I'll bring on like different guest speakers. So I did two rounds of that. And when I went to do the third round, just by coincidence, all the people in that group happened to be women. And when I tell you, I would get so excited when I went to teach this class. And after the class, I'd feel so inspired. I was like, you know what? If people want me to work like one-on-one, you know, with their sons, I'm happy to do it. But when it comes to like this group leadership class, I think the women need a space to be heard and they need a space to be able to give each other like advice. Like I'm going to like lean more into that. And for my first year and a half as the rose grows, I was working with some high school students and with some college students one-on-one where for some of the students, it would be, you know, they need help finding a job or 
they need help applying to college or they need help getting skills to like build friendships. So with those meetings, a lot of it was how can I leverage my network to give this young person experience, but also to give them confidence. And the more that I went through my journey, I realized that it takes a lot of energy and my soul to do a lot of these one-on-one meetings. Whereas I realized if I'm doing online curriculums or if I'm doing speaking engagements, then I have the opportunity to inspire more people within one hour. So really um, in the last two years, I've been focusing like more exclusively on like these larger programs and, and workshops. And with the female empowerment, about a year ago, I went into the Orthodox girls school in Memphis, Tennessee. I have this female empowerment program where a part of the program, there's an activity I do called stand for your friend. And it's all these anonymous prompts, things like, I hate the way I look. I've lost someone I, I love. I've, you know, I've contemplated suicide. I've abused prescription drugs. These young people anonymously answer on the sheet with an X, you know, what's impacted them. I take up the papers. I redistribute the papers. And then we read these prompts out loud that are very heavy. And depending on what's marked on your paper, you stand for your friend. And part of what's so powerful about this exercise is number one, like all the teens know about these issues and sometimes they have experts who come in to talk about them, but it creates a space where they actually engage in dialogue on these different topics. And it kind of makes them realize like, I might not be best friends with the person who's sitting next to me, but like, wow, I can't believe of these 20 girls who I go to school with these are some of the challenges that other girls are facing and just recognizing that everybody is going through different things. Right. But, you know, I realize, like in the personal development world, that's really where we're creating space for people to share some of these like vulnerable thoughts. Whereas for me, if I can create more of those spaces for young people to feel safe, to be authentic, I've really realized like in the last two years of my journey, like, again, I love being the speaker. I love being the center of attention, but there's so much more power and and impact in creating space for other people to share their experience, to teach others. Like when I go into like a corporate talk and I say, you know, has anybody here ever felt like they're like the representative of a community? Like, you know, growing up in a public school in Tennessee, there were times where it was like, okay, Rainy, you're the Jewish girl. Like, what do you say on behalf of the Jewish people? Right. But saying that in a corporation and have somebody else saying like, yes, I experienced that because of X, Y, Z, there's more power and other people sharing their story and their, and their experiences to really create change. So what would be like a day-to-day for you nowadays? Is it mostly speaking engagements or are you still doing any mentoring? What is involved in the organization other than maybe, you know, one-off seminars to large groups? Yeah. So the fun thing about my work life is that like no day is ever the same. A big part of what I do is I spend a lot of time on social media. Pre-COVID, 
I had never ever put up a video of me speaking. I didn't even know how to make a video of me speaking. So it's been so cool, not only like learning how to like post on the different platforms, but I very much consider myself a huge networker. I truly am the girl who said hello to everyone. And through COVID, I really learned how to network online. So I also participate in different business groups. I'm in a lot of different Facebook groups. That's how I'm able like to work on so many different projects and, and do things that might be out of my wheelhouse because there's always someone online who has an experience where they can share knowledge to help you along your journey, right? Whether it's somebody else who published a children's book or whether it's somebody else who's like created, you know, an online newsletter. And then outside of, you know, creating the content and building relationships, I do a lot of writing. Um, I have so many different journals. I really make a point. I know this might be silly to say, but a big part of my routine is like actually interacting with humans. I just got the Amazon app on my phone. Like I'm redoing some stuff in my house. Like, so I can say now, like I have things like being shipped to my place, but like going to the grocery store, going to the pet store, going to my fish store, actually interacting with people in public, not only like fuels my fire and and gives me motivation to come home and like do some of the boring stuff, which today is going to be some of the boring stuff, following up on emails, making sure I have like all like my programming materials, you know, together. It's going to be like a lot of events coming up. So another big part of my routine is like actually like putting myself out there so that I have things to write about, but also so that, you know, I feel, I feel good about myself. And the only like other like big consistent things I would say is, you know, there's certain people who I meet with regularly. There's a girl who does a lot of my website stuff and my email stuff. I try to meet with her once a week, um, not only to work on my business, but I also like find that it motivates me to help her with what she's working on. Shout out to Sydney Siegel. We meet pretty regularly when it comes to just like working on like press and and different like projects as they come up, whether it's setting up this podcast or working with my book in the spring, setting things up with sororities and with uh, with different book fairs. And yeah, I'd say like lastly, the biggest thing that like is the consistent for me is just like being organized. Sometimes with my ideas, I can be like all over the place, but just having things written down, having things in my calendar. And the biggest thing too, is just being able to communicate my ideas and my vision, like as it changes with people in my network. I noticed like when I was in college, sometimes some of the people I would work with, we would start a project, but then all of a sudden, you know, they'd kind of disappear. And I'd be like, what's going on? And over time, like I had to get like real with myself and be like, okay, like, these are qualities that you have that are good, but these are qualities that you need to work on so that like when you do have people on a team, they continue working on the team. That's a big advice for anyone at any point in their journey, no matter how old you are, is sometimes you really have to just like take inventory of how people are responding to you 
and be open about those things, right? Because sometimes how we think things might come off, somebody might be receiving it completely different. And also just like letting people know like how what they're doing is contributing to the overall momentum of what you're doing, right? Because that's like another big thing is nobody wants to spend a lot of time and like do a lot of work only for you to not take the advice or for you to like not apply the information. So yeah, I know that was kind of like all over the place answer, but that's kind of like what, what every day looks like for me. Tell me briefly about the book slash books that you've written. Yeah. I, like I said earlier, thought I was like the worst writer ever. Um, but with the Israel advocacy stuff, when I started traveling a lot in college, I would write about some of my different experiences on Facebook and I would write in the shortest sentences because then that way I knew like my grammar was good and there wasn't any run-ons. The more I would write about, you know, the person I met on the airplane or this experience here, people would say to me, like, we love the way you write. Like, we love the way that you write. And so that kind of like really gave me encouragement to keep writing. So really, I would say like my writing journey started talking about anti-Semitism and talking about some of these different moments that I had at pro-Israel conferences and in the airports on the way there and on the way back. And really after Stand With Us was when I got like mega into journaling. I was so, so, so busy at Stand With Us that I really didn't make a lot of time for journaling every day. Uh, But I'm so grateful for when I did journal because it's so fun to see some of those things now. But I always tell people, you want to journal when you're happy, you want to journal when you're sad, because our emotions truly filter our words. And a couple of years ago, when my father had passed, I wrote this poem about like some of the things that he had taught me. And then I just like forgot about the poem. You know, Shiva was over, life continued. And it wasn't until COVID hit and all my speaking engagements were canceled that I felt all depressed that I pulled out my old journal and I saw that poem. And so I finished the poem. And when I finished the poem, I was like, you know, I think this could be a book. And so I reached out to a childhood friend I hadn't seen since elementary school. Um, And I was like, Allie, I know this is so random. I haven't seen you since elementary school. We honestly hadn't spoken either. It was just one of those like following, you know, each other on social media. And I said, listen, you were always such a good doodler when we were growing up. I wrote this book about my, I wrote this poem about my dad. Like, would you ever be interested in illustrating it? And she was like, oh my God, Raina, like I've always wanted to do that. Like, yes, I'll help you. And when Allie said, I'm in, I'll help you. I made the association that Allie's name is actually short for Alan. And that was my late father's name. So in that moment, I took it as a sign from Hashem. My illustrator and my dad have the same name. I got to figure it out. And so from a journal page to a Google Doc to illustrations to finding a formatter to networking with other people in the process in terms of learning how to ship and learning how to create a crowdfunding campaign and having to create an LLC and a business bank account, right? Because these are all things that you need in order to have a Kickstarter. It was number one, the kid's book kind of gave me the push 
that I really needed to start taking myself more seriously in my business. And even though I've been speaking to teens now for almost 10 years, I love going into elementary schools. Like it's so much fun speaking to kindergartners and third graders. And what's even more insane is once they see me with the book, they want me to come back. So now I'm talking to fifth grade about Holocaust and I'm talking to third grade about setting goals. And it just goes to show, you know, like my whole life, I don't know, I was always kind of raised to like treat everybody the same, to talk to elderly people the same way that I would speak to a peer. And I guess you could say like the girl who said hello to everyone, it's crazy how it's kind of like become a culmination of my whole story of just experiencing intolerance, knowing like how to connect with other people. And my new book, The Girl Who Wore Two Different Shoes, everything that I write about is inspired from real events, real people, real things in my life, right? Because when we write about what we care about, when we write about what's real, not only is it easier for us, but I have to tell you as an author, there's no greater honor than when somebody else says, I see my story and your story. My kid says hello to everyone. My my child lost their father and they also have a kitty named Prince. There's so many different ways that the story creates resonance for other people. And lastly, what's unique about the girl who wore two different shoes. So it's available for pre-order right now, but some of the pre-order options People have the ability to pay to have their child or their grandchild or their pet actually illustrated into the book when it comes out. So the story itself has been written, but if you want to see yourself featured in a children's book, check out the girl who said hello to everyone.com to see more information on my latest, the girl who wore two different shoes. Awesome. And finally, Raina, why the name The Rose Grows? It kind of became this saying for the last two years, I'd say, at Damathus. I knew that I wanted to do something. I didn't know what my next move was going to be. I didn't know necessarily that I was going to start my own business. At one point, I was thinking, do I want to work at this organization or do I want to go to the secular world? And the Rose Grows kind of like became the saying that I just found myself saying at the end of long days and when people would say certain things, it was kind of like an analogy that I would use. And then when it became time to like set my business, originally I was thinking about like doing something with my name, RainaRoseExelbeer.com or like RainaRose.com. And I have three older brothers who are all super creative and thank God, super talented at different things. So through the years, whenever my interns needed a name or needed an idea, my brothers and my my mom and dad are usually my first go-to, my first focus group before I go to like the world. And my brother in Memphis was like, why not the rose grows? And kind of like your course, it was just one of those things where as more time goes by, the list of reasons of why that was a good name just continues to grow. And it's just so funny how when I look back at my journey, There were little things along the way that foreshadowed where I am now. But, you know, when you're climbing up one side of the mountain, you don't know what you don't know. You can't see 
what's on the other side. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm at the top of the mountain. I'm still very much climbing, but I am very proud to say that year three into my business, finally speaking is the largest part of my business. I'm so honored that I have the opportunity to connect with so many different groups and audiences. And again, I just thank God that in 2022, as a modern Orthodox woman, that I have the ability to share my story and to go into rooms and to be heard by people who actually care about what I have to say. And what's interesting about the name, uh, the metaphor of a rose, is that as we know, a rose also contains thorns, which means the journey is not always smooth or comfortable. You know, there's going to be some prickly parts along the way, even as the end result is a beautiful blossom. Totally. And just learning to embrace those thorns. Some seasons are going to be harder than others. And you're allowed to feel sad and you're allowed to be upset and you're allowed to be jealous. Whatever the feelings are, you have to really feel the feelings. Don't run away from them. For some people, I think it's easy to fill up their calendar or, you know, if they're young, it's easy to, you know, go out every night or we live in a world too, where you can like escape into TikTok or like Instagram reels for a couple hours. And it's very easy to put what's going on internally on pause. But the more that you can feel the things and obviously you have to do it with somebody that you trust, but the more that you can say those things out loud, it makes it a lot less scary for you. And it also makes the healing process not easier, but it creates more light in a really, really dark situation. You're not alone if you're going through a hard time. Raina Rose Exelbeard, the founder and CEO of The Rose Grows, author of The Girl Who Said Hello to Everyone and upcoming The Girl Who Wore Two Shoes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And wherever you are in the world, wishing you an amazing week. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.